0: You know, we often in the church uh, talk about the church being in two versions, two sections. There's the church militant and the church triumphant. And this applies to Howard, to understand that Howard last Sunday went from being in the church militant to the church triumphant. The church militant, military, Military does what? It fights. It defends. The church militant are all of us. Those of us who are alive, who are breathing here on this earth. We are fighting for God. The church triumphant are those believers who have won. The victory is theirs and they have reached the finish line. It's a description that helps helps us understand what we are to be doing while we are alive here on earth. I raise that because it is a little bit different than what I'm going to preach on today. I've already said the sermon is about the God who fights. And at the end, point number two, you will see what are we supposed to do? It's not fight. Instead, we see in this passage, our actions are very different from a militant perspective in terms of what we are called to do. Yes, we do struggle. We do fight. We do war against Satan. But our calling is something different. Our passage this morning is found in Exodus chapter 2. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 14. It is the second book in the Bible, that's where the two comes from. Exodus chapter 14, I'll give you a moment to turn there. This is, it's really one of the quintessential moments in all of scripture. It is an event that more than any other that I can think of is referenced over and over again throughout all of the Bible. When God gives the Ten Commandments, what does he start with? This story. They are the Israelites, and we are to obey God because of this story, of what it tells us about God. This series that we're in, in the book of Exodus, is about the wilderness. It is about what Israel experiences in the wilderness. But much more particularly, it is about who God is. And how Israel experienced God in many different ways while they were in the wilderness. The story of Exodus chapter 14 is the crossing of the Red Sea. It is the, the, the beginning of, well not the very beginning, but the, uh, one of the uh, uh, preeminent parts of the Exodus. The, the, the movement of the Israelites out of Egypt. From being slaves to head towards their own promised land. To be a nation on their own. The story is well known of Moses parting the Red Sea. But to recall the miracle of what happened at the Red Sea, you must also remember the miracle that happened before that. Actually, the miracles. For God sent plagues to Pharaoh and to the land of Egypt. So that they would release the Israelites to show that God was stronger than any of the Egyptian gods. That God Yahweh was the one that was in control. And He proved Himself over and over and over again. Resulting in the final plague. The death of the firstborn. And God's salvation for those that would believe His word and put the blood on the mantle and the doorposts of their homes, God would pass over and preserve the firstborn. And as a result of that plague, Pharaoh said, enough is enough. Go, get out of Egypt. But we know that Pharaoh changed his mind. Pharaoh decided, wait a second, what have I done how are we going to live as a society? We need our slave labor. We need them to work for us. I, I, I was foolish. I should not have made that decision. And it wasn't just a change of mind. It was a change of heart because he was angry. And he went and chased after the Israelites. Not to say, hey, come on, we'll pay you better wages. Not to try to to entice them to come back, no, he wanted to wipe them out. He wanted to destroy them, he wanted to kill them, and those that were strong enough and that remained, they would go back to Egypt as slaves. So Pharaoh is hunting down the Israelites. they have been wandering, led by a, a, a pillar a, a cloud and a pillar of fire. they have been experiencing the presence of God, the Israelites have. And here they're wandering along, and Moses has led them to what seems to be a crazy route. And they're moving faster because they've heard reports, the Egyptians are on your tail. They're coming after you. And so they start walking a little bit faster, and they see what's dead ahead, a sea. A big sea, not a creek, not a pond, not a shallow little marsh. It was a big body of water. And they couldn't go any further. And not only had they heard the reports, but they turned around and they saw the Egyptian chariots and the army of Pharaoh marching towards them. And they knew exactly what was in store for them. Let's start reading at verse 10 of Exodus chapter 14. This is the word of God. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Our passage is very easy to outline. You have the fear of the Israelites in verse 10. You have the complaining of the Israelites in verses 11 and 12. You have the instructions, the command from Moses in verse 13. And verse 14 is the principle. This is the main idea. This is what is The main point for us to understand, it's it's my sermon title. When you look at the outline, God fights for those who are weak. And number two, what are we supposed to do? If God is fighting, what's left up to us? That's verse 14. There's two phrases in it. There's two points to my sermon. So we look at the reaction. We look at what the Israelites are feeling. As they're looking back, raising their eyes, and seeing the Egyptians coming down upon them. They're looking at their own destruction. They know they are about to be on the bad side of a, a big whooping. It is not looking good at all for these Israelites. So what do they do? They raise their voices and they cry to the Lord, every single one of you. I do this all the time. It's where, it's where the great Hail Mary play in football comes from. You're hitting a hardship, you don't know what you're going to do, and so you toss that football up and just hope that God delivers it into the hands of your receiver. It's a Hail Mary pass, and we all say those prayers, we all ask God for His help when we don't know what we're going to do, when we're about to have destruction come upon us, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, it doesn't matter. We always, at that last moment, say, oh God, get me out of this situation. If you help me here, I will go to church every Sunday. If you save me here, I will do right by you for the rest of my life. We all have said those prayers, and it's exactly what the Israelites were saying. But notice, we have an idea about where their hearts are as well, because they were greatly afraid but what do the next two verses, verses 11 and 12, what do they say about what the Israelites are feeling? They're angry at Moses and ultimately at God. They say to Moses, What? Did Egypt, was there not enough space in the cemeteries in Egypt? You had to bring us out to the desert to be buried out here? Can you just hear the sarcasm dripping off of their words? Moses, you're a fool. And we were fools to follow you. That's sin. What the Israelites were thinking and how they were feeling. It's not sinful to be afraid. But the very fact that they just got done watching and witnessing how God miraculously saved them. How God brought them out of slavery into freedom. Here they are saying, oh no, we want to be slaves again. We want to be murdered. We want to be malnutritious, uh, uh, malfed. We want to have those bad things in our life again. Give them back to us, God. We don't want this freedom. This freedom that you're giving, look what it's good for. Nothing. The sin of the Israelites was not that they feared, but that they ignored what God had already done for them. We see that God fights. God, one of his most common names, especially in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Lord of hosts. Many of you may not know what that means. What in the world does it mean to be the Lord of hosts? It has nothing to do with a communion wafer. It has to do with armies. With warriors. God is the God of warriors. The Lord of hosts. Hosts means battlements, soldiers, fighters. And God is the God of soldiers and fighters and warriors. Chapter 15, when Moses sings and writes a song, um, I don't know if Moses sang it, but he certainly wrote these words that tell of the glory of God because of his deliverance. He calls God, the Lord is a man of war. We think of God as pleasant and pleasing and loving and gentle and caring and compassionate. When we talk about Jesus, we always focus on that aspect of him. And we tend to incorrectly divide God as being Old Testament God and New Testament God. As if God had changed. As if there were differences. Two different gods. Or he had a good night's sleep and he didn't have a good night's sleep. No, that's crazy. God is the same God. The God of the Old Testament is exactly the same God of the New Testament. And when we think of God with a single attribute, God is love, we do damage to the name of God. Because God is love. God is compassionate. God is forgiving and merciful and gracious. And God is a fighter. God is a warrior. God has wrath. God condemns and judges. Both are true. They are equally true. And as we go through this series at looking at who God is, and we pull out different themes, Do not focus only on one thing. I don't want you leaving this sanctuary today saying God is a fighter and so I'm going to be a fighter. No, that's not the lesson to draw from this sermon, from this passage. We understand that God is multifaceted. And so understand that this is a series that is talking about who God is in many different ways. Over and over again, we see God expressed as a fighter. He is the warrior God. After the Israelites get out of the wilderness, what happens next? They cross over the river Jordan and they enter into the promised land. And were all of the nations that were there in the promised land just opening up the doors and throwing parades and and just having a wonderful party because, oh, here here are the Israelites who've come to take over our city. Welcome, come on. No, the Israelites had to fight for their land. And when you see over and over again, just think of Jericho. What happened? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. No, he didn't. Joshua didn't fight. Joshua marched around. It was God who fought the battle of Jericho. And it's God who fought through the whole conquest of the promised land. And after their conquest, when they are coming up against other nations, and Israel has kings and and nations that are coming against them, who fights for them? Israel had an army, but it was the Lord who was fighting for them. Over and over ago, again, we see that God fights for his people. How does he fight? Well, he uses many different means. But most specifically, and as we see in our text, God fights supernaturally. It's not a fair fight. You try to go up against the maker of this world, the creator, God Almighty, what do you think God's going to say, okay, I'm going I'm to tie both hands behind my back and, and we'll have a fight now? No. God is powerful. Powerful. God is God. It's not a fair fight. And yet man always thinks he can win. God wins his battles supernaturally, parting the Red Sea and letting the Israelites go through on dry ground. And then once every single one, millions of people get through That Red Sea, what happens? He closes it, not on a single Israelite. There is zero collateral damage. But all of the Egyptians are destroyed. That great promise that Moses says, the Egyptians who you see today, looking back at those chariots and those horses and those warriors, all those Egyptians that you see today, you shall never see again. They certainly saw Egyptians again, but none of them. They were all wiped out. God supernaturally fights for his people. That's who he fights for. Who does he fight for? His people and his own glory. That's kind of a why question as well. Why does God fight? God fights for his people and he fights for his people so that he, gets the glory. God could have made it real easy for the Israelites to get out of Egypt. He could have directed them and changed the hearts of Pharaoh and given them a nice easy passage directly to the promised land. But instead, they encounter the Red Sea. They encounter certain destruction and God saves them and he does this. He leads them this way so that they can see yet again who God is. That he fights for them, that he is with them, that he is leading them, that he provides for them. So that they can see it is Yahweh who saves them. God promises to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. God fought for them because they were his people. There was no faith. We we saw the first couple of verses, they're complaining, they're doubting, they're greatly afraid. They don't trust that God can save them. And yet God still does. God doesn't fight for them because they're good people. God doesn't fight for them because they are faithful. No, God fights for them because they are his people. Even when they are faithless, we see the faithfulness of God. They are afraid and they're complaining. And yet God still fights for them. Throughout the history of Israel, they go through and they turn their back. They break the covenant with God. They worship other gods. They do not obey Him. And yet, God protects them. God continues to fight for them. As we sang earlier in the song, Jesus is the true and better. True and better Abraham. The true and better Isaac. The true and better Moses and David. And as Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, the ultimate fulfillment of the Exodus is found in Jesus Christ. Because He is the one who fights for us against sin. He fights for us against death. And He wins. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. The beauty of Easter morning is not just... For that one Sunday a year. Jesus is alive now. He has won the victory over death. He has defeated Satan. Do you believe that? Please say amen. Yes! Jesus has won. Jesus is better than Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery. Because Jesus has freed you from sin. Jesus died so that you would no longer be driven by your sinful desires. Be persuaded and confused by Satan. Jesus has won. Jesus fights for his people. Now, we're not Jews in here. Most of us. And yet, we can declare we can have assurance that God is fighting for us because we are His people. It's not just the fact that Jesus died. It's that He died for me. And that I place my faith, I trust that His death pays the penalty for my sins. That's what it means to be a child of God. To be a follower of God. To be a Christian. God fights for his people. Lest we think he just fights for everybody, just for general good. The promise of scripture is that he fights for his people. What a great comfort. What great assurance we have. If we are God's people, God certainly fights for us. But we've got to pause for a moment and say, wait a second. Where do I, where does Eric Where do you fit into this story? We need to be careful. Because too often, we are the Israelites. We are the greatly fearful people. We are the ones that are looking at our circumstances, at whatever problem is coming up behind us and about to devour and destroy us. And that's what our focus is on. And that's what our worries and our concerns are on. And when we see the immediacy of our circumstances, we quick throw up a prayer, help me God. That's not right. That's not the way we are to be living our lives as disciples of Jesus. We are to be marching forward with our eyes on Him, not concerned about what's going on and letting those circumstances so greatly affect us and design who, uh, develop who we are and how we act based upon the things that are going on around us. We are too often blind to the power of God. We forget what he's already done and what he has promised to do. So point number two, after seeing that God fights and God fights for those who are weak, those who are in need. So what are we supposed to do? If God is fighting, does that mean I'm supposed to pick up my my gun and fight alongside with God? That's not what he says here. What does he tell the Israelites to do? Verse 13 is a summary of verse 14. Moses gives them a threefold command, basically. He tells them to fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. He tells them, Your attitude, what is your attitude? Don't be afraid, fear not. What are your actions? Stand firm. The King James here says, stand still. And there's two ideas here. Yes, you're supposed to stand still, but you're standing still to show that you are not trying to solve the problem on your own. If you're standing still, you can't fight. God wants us to stand still, to stand firm, rooted, in a foundation of faith, to have faith that God will fight to depend upon Him. This is what He calls us to do. Do not fear. Stand firm and see our vision. Our attitudes, our actions, and our vision are in verse 13. What we're supposed to think. What we're supposed to do. And what we're supposed to be looking at. God comes and saves the day. How many of you know who Thomas Jonathan Jackson is? Have you ever heard that name? I think there's one or two of you in here that might know him by the name that I just said. Now, if I tell you how he's commonly known as Stonewall Jackson, oh, yeah, I know who Stonewall Jackson was. Southern General in the army of the Confederacy. I bring him up as an illustration because that, to me, pretty well summarizes Moses' command to don't be afraid, stand firm, and see the salvation of God. Stonewall Jackson got that nickname in 1861 when he was fighting the battle, the first battle of Bull Run, or the Battle of Manassas, it's referred both ways. And they were getting beat. The Union Army was just beating them. And Stonewall Jackson took his brigade and stood the ground. And one of the other generals, one of his commanders, saw the work and told the other soldiers, look at Jackson, he's standing like a stone wall. He was planted. He was firm. And that's the attitude. That's the imagery that we are to have when we are in our difficulties, our difficult circumstances, to be a stone wall. Don't try to fix it yourself. If you're out there fighting, it so easily leads to pride. We think we can solve it on our own. We think that we're smart enough or strong enough or have the technology To be able to overcome whatever comes up against us. It's that horrible old philosophy of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. That's not faith. God wants us to trust in Him. So when do we fight? When are we supposed to fight? The New Testament gives us plenty of of illustrations. Most commonly, Ephesians chapter 6. We've got a whole... Uh, regalia, a whole outfit that we are to wear in our fight for the Lord. A helmet, a breastplate, a, a sword, a belt, shoes. We are ready for battle. Who do we fight against, though? We are not fighting against people. We are not to fight against our enemies, whether they be societal, whether they be political, whether they be national. We are to fight as God's people, we are to fight against Satan. Our battle is spiritual. Are you prepared for spiritual battle? For when we encounter the difficulties of life, what great comfort we have that God will fight for us. And we are to fight a spiritual battle against principalities, against demons against society, the love of the world, the book of Revelation. We just got done finishing a long series in the book of Revelation in my Sunday school class. And one of the main pictures, one of the ways that the, the letters, the first three chapters of the book are seven letters to seven churches. And it applies to the rest of the book. So often people think, oh, that's just I don't know what's happening there, but those are letters that John wrote. And then here we've got the, this great vision, the, 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 as I described it, the great comic book of, of the future, the present and the future. Well, in every letter, every letter in the book of Revelation ends with the same phrase. My class knows what I'm going to say. To those who overcome, to those who conquer, Are blessings. Their names are spoken by God. They're pillars in the the temple of God. All of these wonderful things are described to those who overcome, to those who conquer. But in those ways, we've got to be careful to think that we are fighting because the rest of the book of Revelation, the church, us, we're not described as warriors. We're not described as fighters. How are we described? as worshipers, as martyrs, as the bride of Christ. This whole idea of our needing to fight for God, God doesn't need us fighting for Him. He certainly can do it on His own. And our promise, our comfort, brothers and sisters, is that God is not silent. God is not still. Your God We'll fight for you. All you need to do is to be silent, to shut up and watch. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do come to you and we are so grateful. We are grateful for our salvation that you have made us your own. But God, you have not left us alone. You walk with us you control time. You control nature. You control circumstances. And we know that whatever we encounter, Father, we can trust in you. For you are a good God. A God who promises to fight for his people. For your own glory. God, in our response, in our, in our lives, would you teach us to be silent Would you teach us to stand still, to trust in you, to stand firm in your promises and to see how amazingly you save us. God, we ask for your help and we give thanks for receiving it. In the name of Jesus, amen.